Hey everyone, welcome to Trump Stakes. Welcome back to Trump Stakes. We're back. We got a uh, tonight. We're, we're, it's it's the Fourth of July, eve of the Fourth of July. So we thought we would, uh, you know, look at a topic which is pretty big deal. Is America in decline? And we'll discuss. I mean, I don't know. We don't know. People, it, it's a scary time. We got a crazy man at the helm, and we're gonna go through a lot of big issues. Yeah. And. Uh, uh, our conclusion might surprise you So stick around Yeah uh, We're not dead We have been gone a while uh, Greg was abroad I got married and went abroad And you started graduate school Actually Greg and I got married <laughs> <laughs> We were abroad together No, no I uh, uh, Nothing happened in my life <laughs> Everything's pretty much the same with me Yeah uh, But we're back We're excited to be here Fourth of July uh, and on the eve of our 229th birthday, mm. tackling a question that's been asked decade after decade after decade, is America in decline? And, and when we say decline, I guess what we mean is, is uh, are we no longer the best? Yeah. <laughs> It's weird. It's like yeah. a weird. There, there. This is a uniquely American question. Like, yes. A, in Azerbaijan, they don't worry about yeah. this. <laughs> They're like, are we in a sense like finally? And then was like, no. It's we're still, just, yeah, still, still Azerbaijan. It's Things a, are good, it's though. a uniquely. Yeah. I, I think we're right now we're the only country in the world that asks this question. Yeah, and and I think that it's a, a relatively new question. I mean, I don't think it was a. A question that really made sense uh, to be asked till after the Second World War, when we know, were the Europe was in shambles and we were kind of the last. Standing. And even you know, even when the Soviet Union was you know in some ways like a peer to the United States in the Cold War, we still had the sense that we we were better and we were better and, and we won. So, <laughs> <laughs> and uh, the thesis was confirmed. And the thesis was confirmed. Uh, yes. You know, so and then after the Cold War. Um, there was this thing, you know, like the unipolar moment, like we were this new international order that was going to be left by the led by the United States. Uh, no one could compete against us. We we sort of got. Uh, there's a whole generation of people. It's weird. I've thought about this. Our generation grew up with that. Like, yeah, we only knew America as yeah at its truly apex. truly top dog yeah. and in the '90s. You know, the biggest thing that we were worried about was you know. Uh, like when, no, nothing. We were we weren't worried about anything. So uh, uniquely American question, but now now thing times are changing, and it's sort of inevitable, right? Like yeah, no one's ever been. First of all, no one's ever been as top as as we were. Yeah, so no one's ever fallen. No quite one's, as hard. No one's ever fallen quite as hard. And, you know, there's other countries. There's China. There's uh, China. China. Uh, there's uh, other countries. Germany. Uh, people on the up and up. Uh, and and so that's it, it's uh, it's kind of returned to normal. Yes, but it's it's a really tough question to evaluate, right? I mean, we think the way that we're going to do it, we've come up with some some kind of broad categories that we're kind of going to discuss one by one. The, you know, the the health of our domestic political institutions, the state of American leadership abroad on the international stage, and just kind of our general economic standing. Um, as kind of the largest economy in the world, and um, are we creating, uh, you know, 
meaningful growth for for most. And, and we don't, you know, that sounds like a lot, and we're not we're not like diving into these topics because that'd be impossible. Yeah. <laughs> It'd be like you know, flip your CD over and yeah. then hear the second half of the yeah. podcast. Um, <laughs> we're sort of going to outline those, but the more interesting discussion is really uh, or. Should we take these 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 idea this idea of America sort of losing its position of world leadership seriously, and if it is or if it is not, like what are the dynamics that are driving that? So yeah. that that's kind of where we're headed, but we kind of want to tee up uh, the big, uh, you know, all the shit, all the shit <laughs> that's going yeah. on, and it's kind of a good way to do this because you know we've been out for a few weeks and there's just way too much. News to sort of catch up on in the shorter time frames that we normally record. So, absolutely. So, uh, we're going to gloss over a lot. Well, of we can details. start where with what we usually like talk the most about, which is sort of um, like the state of America's domestic political institutions. Yeah. Which we should note has been something people were concerned about before Trump. Yes. And I think are especially concerned since Trump. Yeah. I mean, and so when we talk about this, we're, we're talking about. Um, like, do we have a Congress that can pass bills and and serve as an appropriate check on yeah. the other branches of government? And do our, our our elected offices like competitive? Like, are they are congressional districts representing sort of the democratic opinion of a group of people, or are they gerrymandered to be sort of like safe seats for one Side. party or the other? Um, or, or it does the American political system? We have these issues like entitlement reform and uh, well, entitlement reform. Uh, an inequality that, like, are we we just seem not to be able to solve, like, at all. Yeah, and they've been on the the plate for like over a decade, mm-hmm. um, and and it, though some people think those issues are are sort of like pose existential threats to the country. I mean, of those, like, what do you think? F- first question is, what do you think are, are like the biggest symptoms of weakness in the domestic political situation, and then? Uh, how worried should we be about them? I think one of the and, – and this isn't new at all, but the lack of trust in government long term has a really, really corrosive effect on the country's ability to tackle those big kinds of problems. Yeah. And this is you know a problem that really has been in existence since Watergate. I mean it's something that – Oh, yeah, like, in Vietnam. Pre- yeah. And, and so Americans' trust in government has declined and declined and declined. Um, and all and, institutions, not just government. Yeah, and and Trump has really, I think, dramatically accelerated that trend, both through his own actions as the executive and through fomenting even more distrust of other independent institutions like the media, <laughs> yeah, I science. Mean, can, can uh, you, we went, you know, in a, in a relatively short period of time from I like Ike. You know, Eisenhower Mm -hmm. to she's bleeding from the face, that ignorant, you know. Yeah, and just so vulgar and and just For better or worse, like America has a civic religion. And, you know, I'll tell a story. When I was a kid and I I thought about what God looked like, right? I had two images, okay? The first— I've heard this before, listeners. (laughs) (laughs) The first was Mike Mulligan from Mike Mulligan and the Steam Shovel. <laughs> and if, you, if you're not familiar with that, look it up. He digs a big hole, I think. <laughs> I haven't read it in a while. Yeah. <laughs> and so that was Mike Mulligan. And the other one was George Washington. 
And that's who I thought God looked like. Mm -hmm. And there is this idea that our, like our top national leaders are, you know, they're like the chieftains. They're like the keepers of the flame. Yeah. They're they're the, they represent the best of our character and they, and they rally us to like be the best that we can be. Yeah. And solve big problems. And and I'm not feeling that Donald Trump's Twitter is not inspiring me to no. To be better human. Yeah. Oh, and they can get too far, right? Like, we don't want that to get... Then it's, like, sort of like a dictatorship, and it's, like, fearless leader Obama. Yeah. Yeah, but I think the that really gets to a, a really useful heuristic for the question we're trying to answer, which is, do you trust the president um, when, when the White House says something? What do you think something? people... Do we? You we know. have a podcast which is devoted to attacking the president as yeah. incompetent. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, surprise. Yeah, no, we don't. We don't. Uh, I mean, I guess I would trust him. Um, I don't know. I wouldn't trust uh, him with anything. Yeah, you, couldn't, you can't would think you, of one well, thing. I, I mean, he's so erratic. He, full, it's a couple of things. One is he has no knowledge. Right? None. And, uh, An so, empty vessel. So you could argue that like a, a farmer person has no knowledge of, you know, the Middle Eastern political dynamic, but you still trust him. Yeah. Because, you know, he runs a farm and he's got like folk wisdom about that and, you know, all that shit. Um, but Donald Trump, you know, not even like competent in business. So he literally has no knowledge. Nothing. Right. And uh, also he's like erratic and impulsive. Yeah. Uh, Vindictive and petty. Yeah. And, and possibly mentally ill. Yes. Um, anything else? Uh, I think that. Yeah, that's that's not enough. Yeah, I mean, when I when you think it, it is strange, I've never had this experience of feeling like the leadership of the country, starting with the president and then his immediate advisors, was so um, either in the president's case like mentally ill, but then more broadly sort of like incompetent or at least like ideologically so in left field that um, I'm just concerned by whatever they would do. In this case, right field, no. Well, yeah. Yeah. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. <laughs> We're over here in left field. Yeah. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. So the um, that's new. Yeah, and and another heuristic we're sort of using here is heuristic. Like, what is the the government's ability to respond to external crises, emergencies, pandemics, disasters, financial crashes? Right. Believe it or not. It, even though we felt at this like heightened state of insanity for six months since Trump became president, oh, unemployment's like all yeah, all of the every crisis has been like self-inflicted. Mm-hmm. I, so, partly, I think that's not by accident, but I, I can get into that in just a second. You know, I think about uh, in World War II when the Nazis had like broken through the Eastern Front and like Stalin's like world was collapsing. Yeah, a couple days after the front collapsed, he like went to his dasha. Mm-hmm. Uh, to like, and and sort of apparently kind of had a nervous breakdown. Yeah, and some he was gone for so long that people thought like, well, maybe he's not coming back. Yeah, and uh, uh, sort of fortunately slash unfortunately, uh, he did. Yeah, <laughs> and, and he was able to respond to the crisis. But I do kind of wonder if if the shit really hit the fan. If if Trump would go basically get if, it together. Like if, if, if Trump he would go to Mar-a-Lago and just and, not come yeah. back. He it's he like might. the president won't come out of his room. Yeah. <laughs> and he's yeah, tweeting. He's like, I won't come out. I won't come out. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Howard Hughes was on to something. Uh, yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. So I do I do have those. Oh, and the other thing yeah. I was gonna say about the crisis thing is if I was Russia or North Korea, I, I 
you know, it's sort of Nixon had this thing where when Nixon was trying to negotiate the U.S. exit from Vietnam, he, like, would sort of leak out that he was considering, like, nuking North, North Vietnam. Yeah. And he would say to Kissinger that he was doing that because, like, oh, I want to keep Mad dog diplomacy. Yeah, mad dog. Like, yeah. no one will know what I'm going to do. So they'll, mm-hmm. they'll be – they'll take me more seriously or whatever. Yeah. Uh, in Trump's case, I don't think he's doing that on purpose, but I wouldn't be surprised if other countries were like, man, we do not know. Yeah. I mean, and we've sort of gotten a sense of it from – how he's responded to like Lon- like a terrorist attacks in London, right? Where he's sort of like in the middle of uh, well, he has to insert you know, himself into everything. Yeah, like attacking the mayor of London, you know, uh, for his own misunderstanding of what the mayor actually said and yeah. stuff. So, I mean, it suggests that the the tools Trump will use to respond to a crisis are the same ones that he used to respond to anything, which is like lash out and don't really think about it. Yeah. So, and even absent crisis, he doesn't have the focus to deal with issues that are even his own priorities. So, he doesn't really speak about healthcare reform. Not at all. Um, very little. And when he does, he he doesn't say anything for it. He only says Obamacare is collapsing. Yeah. And after after the Senate decided to delay the vote on uh, their healthcare repeal, and they all went to the White House at that meeting. The New York Times had this report out uh, where a couple of anonymous senators were were speaking off the record and said that um, someone brought up that the fact that there were massive tax cuts in the bill was like problematic to their supporting it. Yeah, and Trump seemed to like just not understand that there were you know a, the hundreds of billions of dollars in tax breaks in the bill and was like, no, 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 we're handling tax reform later. Oh my god! And everyone kind of like looked at each other like, uh, Jesus, what? You said it, man. Yeah. <laughs> so, <laughs> the uh, but anyway, what what this is getting at is. Uh, at least especially with the executive like the executive is not functioning you yeah. don't have uh, you have very uh, well he's on pace generally with appointments or nominations a, a little bit behind a little bit but... behind with appointments to the executive branch but apparently not a lot of a lot of senior people are missing which is unusual yeah so at the undersecretary level which are really these essential nodes for running departments especially state and defense yeah um you know, it's so important in terms of being a connection between people abroad and the secretary's office mm-hmm. and the White House uh, are just missing. So, so n- none of those people. So policy isn't really happening. No and federal. We'll get into that more when we talk about kind of the foreign policy yeah. aspects. Yeah. No for No no uh, prosecutors. Yeah. No ambassadors. Mm-hmm. In many cases, there are civil servants who are filling these roles, but they're still important. Yeah, but the problem with that is the as acting assistant secretaries or acting ambassadors don't have the They're authority not to make change. Yeah, really. and, and no one, you know, no one really takes their word seriously, especially in this administration when the Secretary of State is regularly contradicted by the president. And then you sort of have this erosion of institutional knowledge because there are a lot of experts who are leaving the government. Uh, there are sort of regulatory bodies like the EPA Science Commission, which is being gutted. Yeah. Um, it's like the incredible shrinking slash dysfunctional executive. Yeah, hanging by a thread. And uh, Congress is sort of a bigger discussion. I think there are – Congress probably has a bad rap in terms of its overall dysfunction. Uh, but a deserved one. Somewhat. I, I think, I think con- Congress isn't quite as dysfunctional as people say it is. 
because there's actually a lot of quiet business that gets done. It's sort of like the full moon phenomenon where you like ask nurses if there's more suicides on full moons, and they're like, yes, and it's not true, but it's just because they notice the suicides when there's a full moon. Yeah. Um, what I'm saying is people only pay attention to Congress when it's broken. And there's a lot of times when it's not, and it just doesn't make the news. So then people's impressions are like, "These fuck sticks can't walk straight." Yeah, <laughs> and um, which is true. So the last major piece of legislation passed and made into law is that. Why well, I haven't been paying attention. Yeah. <laughs> no, there was the. Uh... Well, not there hasn't been major legislation under it, Trump. Exactly. Oh, there, well, no, no, no. There was. Uh, there it was. They have unified was, government. And it was Me- Megan's law, dude. Kate's law. Kate's law. Whatever. I thought that just passed the House. Uh, did it? No, I think it passed the Senate too. I don't know. I've been gone. Has to do with like punishing illegal immigrants <laughs> or undocumented immigrants. Excuse me. Yeah. Um, <laughs> the, so okay, there's stuff going on, and there. I, yeah, I mean, the the major things are when they avert a government shutdown. Yes. And pass it, uh, you know, a, a resolution on the debt ceiling, right? So like the most basic of functioning. It's like, it's like our now high bar for success. Of yeah. Like we didn't shoot ourselves in the face. There are certain. Thank you. There Congress. are certain people who think that's a feature, not a bug. By the way, stupid people. Stupid people. Not us. Okay. So, but moving on. Um, sort of the bigger thing, the thing that people have been talking about more and more, uh, is America's role in like. Do we want to talk about the media at all? Do we? Before we move on. Um, I mean, the media talks a lot about the media, so. Are we the media? I don't, sort of. Not really. No. But the okay. Uh, okay. So, do you think there there are ta- the media? I think there are uh, systematic attacks against independent sources of authority, mm-hmm. from the intelligence community to the scientific community to the academic community to the news media. Yeah. Um, and I think that's because uh, this administration is only interested in. Uh, a sort of fleeting definition of winning, uh, whether that has any actual relationship to a set of facts that are agreed upon by everybody else is Mm -hmm. sort of a secondary matter. Uh, And so I think that, yes, there's very much a a systematic um, discrediting and attack on news media, but I also think media sort of fixated on itself and the only thing the media loves more is like stories about the centrality of the media. That's uh, true. I mean, know, and who can blame stories. them, right? Like, yeah. You know, I mean, it's like, I recognize it's a huge problem, but it ju- it only takes me like five seconds from it goes like where I'm really worried to then all of a sudden there's that like self-righteous. Well, like, somebody always takes it too far and that's the problem. Right. And, uh, but I don't think that like congressional candidates should be assaulting journalists. No. Um, or arresting them. Um, yeah. The uh, I'm troubled by the attacks on the media by the Trump administration. I also think that there are – I don't worry about institutional attacks on the media in terms of like laws or executive actions. I, I think there's safeguards there to stop that. But I do worry about like a loner getting like riled up and like shooting up the CNN building in Atlanta. Uh, yeah, or something. And like the president that. certainly seems to be, because from a pure effectiveness standpoint, like the media has never been so effective. Because we live in the age of leaks. Yeah. 
Uh, and so they're getting – I mean they're doing better reporting than they've ever done. Yeah. So it's not as if the media from a reporting standpoint is being crimped by – True. By the administration. It's, it's just being like systematically undermined and discredited. I get yes. That is true. Uh and that's that's a little bit that's a little scary. Although again, that gets to this problem of perceptions. So it's really hard in the age of social media to understand like what the state of the American psyche is. Because all of these crazy people, the shouting class uh, people like us yeah. get <laughs> – no, 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 no. I mean opinionated yeah. people. We try to be even-handed. Uh, at least I try to be even-handed. Yeah. <laughs> well, at least I do, jackass. The, well, these those voices get elevated, mm-hmm. and so it gives the impression that there is a widespread uh, erosion of the media's credibility as a result of Trump's demonization. Yeah. I mean some of those voices even get elevated to the presidency. <laughs> no, that's true. But I'm, I don't know. I think that we do make the mistake sometimes of over-reading into the state of Trump's America. I believe hardcore Trump's America is a really small part of America. Yeah. But because of the media, because of social media and Fox and, oh, and you know, punditry uh, on, you know, Jeffrey Lord or whatever. Yeah. We get this, uh, we get this warped perception of, of how, what the, the country is like. Yeah. And it's, it's really hard for, uh, as a single person in this giant country to, to really understand how the needle is moving one direction or the other. We're kind of getting off topic here. Yeah, but uh, your your point's well taken. Uh, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but okay, so media. Uh, well, I don't. It's okay, probably so, not as bad as we think. Um, worst case scenario for our domestic political institutions: constitutional crisis. Uh, Coup. Say, <laughs> say there's questions about whether or not the president is, uh, you know, compromised by a hostile foreign power. Okay, That'd be so a worst case I've scenario. actually thought about this how this plays out, right? So the the president gets impeached, right? He doesn't see it as legitimate, um, so he refuses to leave the White House. He announces on Twitter that he needs a citizens brigade to defend the White House from the illegitimate Russia investigation soft coup. At which point, five thousand armed people uh, arrive in Washington D.C. and surround the White House. Uh, preventing anyone from removing the president, uh, at which point uh, the uh, Speaker of the House, uh, accompanied by the Chief Justice of the Supreme Court, are escorted into the White House to negotiate the surrender of the president. Fan fiction. Fan fiction. Coup fan fiction. There it's you a, go. So. All right, yeah, that, that'll do for a worst-case scenario. Okay. All right, but assuming that doesn't happen uh, and America continues to interact with the world... Okay. How are we doing on that front? Uh, well, this is the one that I'm more worried about, right? Because yeah. this is even harder to sort of put back in the tube. Well, because this is the area where the objective factors uh, absent Trump's political leadership are, like, very clear, okay. which is that you have, for the first time in a very long time, rising uh, peer competitors. So China uh, in particular and then not really right like you have like a more assertive russia i guess yeah uh aggressive but a fraction of the size a fraction of the size but you know i mean thousands of nuclear weapons yeah uh and very cunning yeah. and savvy it controls most of the oil for europe and at the same i mean and let's not forget not only is it china and russia but it's also uh an increasingly surprisingly despite some bumps recently an increasingly uh, cohesive europe 
Um, I don't know if I would call Europe increasingly cohesive. I would say it is, uh, you know, it, fracturing somewhat. Somewhat. Okay, but take a Brexit, uh, the rise of far-right, anti-EU. But go listen to our second episode of this podcast. So much has <laughs> changed. Uh, I, okay, but I guess I'm heartened by, like, some of the recent elections. France, uh, you have other nationalist parties, like, losing in, they lost in Hungary. Yeah. Um, and, or Austria, excuse me. Yeah. And so, uh, but the big picture, right? Like, big picture. You have, like, EU security cooperation. You have Germany, like, asserting more of a leadership role. And I'm talking, like, 10 to 15-year trends. Like, we wouldn't look at, like, the past 18 months and be like, hmm, like, it's the trajectory of China changing. Like, big geopolitical level. There are other forces yeah. that could challenge the United States in new ways. That existed before Trump. So there are already yes. these questions. Absolutely. And then, and then what's Trump done to sort of make those questions more concerning? Well, he uh, refused to reinforce Article 5 of the NATO Treaty. Uh, so qu- there are now massive questions around America's commitment to mm-hmm. an integrated defense of Europe. At the same time, you have this newly assertive Russia um, waging both cyber campaigns and assisting you know, anti-EU parties like the National Front in France. And, and Trump's failure to push back against that. Yeah. Uh, and so, you know, at the same time that, uh, you know, really f- for the first time since the end of the Cold War, you have a, a much more hostile, actively engaged Russia now that they're, like, no longer in default and Putin is, like, firmly established as the sort of a SAR level. Mm-hmm leader um, lashing out again, and NATO is in kind of the worst position uh, it's been in probably since de Gaulle uh, pulled France out. Yes and no. You know, relatively speaking, in terms of power, NATO is, like, massively more powerful than Russia. Yeah, but, I mean, NATO is all about, like, sending a message. Yeah. You know, that... uh, N-A-T-O, no. Yeah. (laughs) NATO... (laughs) You know, that should uh, be their new motto. Yeah, they that in Latin. Write a letter. Yeah. Um, you know, but it's all about uh, you You can't uh, <laughs> attack, like, a periphery country without triggering a much larger response. And if that secondary response is in doubt, uh, then the effectiveness of NATO is then up for grabs. Okay, but vis-a-vis, like, America's position in the world... Um, yeah, NATO is like uh, basically. Actually, NATO was created by the Europeans. So it actually wasn't like created by America, but it be- we negotiated the Atlantic Charter. I know, but the idea of like collective European security against the Soviet Union was like European initiated. Yeah, and but all you know, all the best hegemons kind of plant the seed <laughs> and then come back. Point is, NATO is a a, fun, a foundational part of the post World War II like American mm-hmm. created yeah. security architecture. Uh, and if that's weakening, like, it's hard to see that as anything but, like, a weakening of the American hand. Then in Asia, you have China, uh, which is, like, obviously in a better position to, like, exert influence in Asia. Yeah. Although, I mean... I mean, with the American withdrawal, with Trump's withdrawal from the Trans-Pacific Partnership Trade Agreement... Oh, that was dead anyway. Which was... It was dead anyway, but um, something like TPP... Uh, it was really important for cementing American influence in the region. And by 
pulling out of a massive step towards more economic integration with that part of the world, it did sort of cede a lot of ground to China. It did, and then there's and also, they will definitely fill that. And then there's also all the rhetoric, like you know, Japan's not paying their fair share, and uh, neither are the South Koreans, and, and, and you know. yeah, exactly. But the thing is that I don't think he understands is that the whole other people not paying their fair share thing is also again like a a feature, not a bug. Like it's like dependency, you know. Yeah. It's like we're your security sugar daddy, so like there's no reason to build up your armed forces because then we're gonna have like all this leverage over I'm you. I'm never gonna leave you, baby. Yeah, I'm here for you, and like he doesn't get that either. So yeah, all those institutions, because all those institutions do things, and and the and like the member countries of NATO and Japan and stuff, they all get benefits from them, mm-hmm. but like we get more benefits because they're all basically levers of American power. Yeah. And, uh, and so building off that, because I think it's an excellent point, is in the Middle East, uh, which – and we talked about this in our last episode going over Trump's foreign trip, but siding so clearly with the Saudis, um, instead of having a part of the world where American influence sort of prevents – sort of regional factionalism from lashing out. Yeah, because they're all part of sort of the American security architecture. Right. By siding with the Saudis like that, it essentially just gave the green light for the Saudi-led blockade of their neighbor, Qatar. Which Uh, we talked about in the last podcast before it happened. Yeah. And that is such a... And you don't think you're going to learn something. Yeah, we called it. (laughs) Um, We said it was a bad, dangerous game to play. Um and you know that that's a huge problem. We have ten thousand troops in Qatar. Uh, that's where central the CENTCOM uh, is based. It's where our fight against ISIS is launched from. And we can't fly over, you know, Bahrain or the UAE's airspace or the Saudi airspace. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's hampering our fight against ISIS. This whole idea to fight terrorism, and now we've like tied a hand behind our back by. Just like spinning the roulette wheel. Yeah, I mean, it's probably even more difficult for us to like support Saudi Arabia's self-defeating war in Yemen. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I mean, so um, like, I think the the Saudi Arabia Qatar dispute is one of the clearest examples we have yet of the real costs of American retrenchment abroad. Of of not putting in the time to manage complicated relationships. Not having the talent in place to do it. Yeah, or the capacity. And not pro- providing the rhetorical reassurance that like America's committed to these relationships. Yeah, because, because you have the State Department and the President saying opposite things. Um, and there's really no end in sight because they've created a situation where neither side can really back down without... Uh, you know, massively embarrassing themselves. Well, there's a flip side of this. We, we talked about the domestic, and now we're talking about the international. But there's a relationship there because if think about if you're like a like a regional power, or or even if you're like a not not a real power of any type, and the United States is asking you to like join these cooperatives, these security institutions, and stuff. Or if you're not going to join a group like that, if you don't think the the leader of it is stable. Yeah. Right. Would you join like an alliance led by like Brazil or 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 Russia um, that you're going to like really give up a lot of you're going to invest a lot and give up a lot of autonomy because you don't know what those what's going to happen with those regimes, like how how committed they're going to be. And, and, and what, what have you. And it's, it made sense for a really long time 
to, you know, throw your lot into the United States because there yeah. seemed to just be like this super strong consensus that we were in it for the long haul. Yeah. But if you have doubts about, you know, maybe it's not going to be a great idea to have 20,000 troops of a foreign power on our soil in 10 years. Yeah. You know? Like, yeah, those, those questions or are Or you're going to hedge your, you're going to hedge your bets. Like, are you going to, yeah. if you're the Philippines in Asia and the United States for a long time was like, no, 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 come, come, yeah. come under the umbrella, come under the blanket, the water's warm, yeah. or like whatever it is. <laughs> and then you're thinking like, huh, like maybe the United States isn't that committed to Asia. You know, maybe you start buying fighter jets from China or something. Well, that's not going to happen. But you, yep. you kind of do some cross balancing. But the, the president of the Philippines, Rodrigo Duterte, went to China, got the red carpet rolled out for of him. Of course. Uh, you know, met with extremely high uh, leaders in the Communist Party. I mean, you know, very much in like a courting period. Um, Oh, we yeah. all remember what that was like. Yeah. Uh, young love. Uh, when China's force courting you, that's yeah. the best. And then later, it's stale. Yeah, and yeah. then they've militarized the South China Sea. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And your fishing boats are getting But the sunk. point is that, yeah, there's a relationship between that domestic instability and, like, the, the durability of these international institutions that we basically use to exert influence over the entire world. <laughs> yeah. But that influence has the effect of preventing things like the Saudi-Qatar dispute. Yeah. Um and so, like, but that's one of the the things that's really tough um, about answering the question: like, is America in decline? Is that U.S. influence abroad? Uh, it's sort of like a counterfactual. Like, it's important because of the things that don't happen as mm-hmm. a result of it. So we'll see. Check yeah. back in ten years. Who knows? So, <laughs> I mean, is this? I mean, is this a permanent? Uh, you well, know, it's it, sort of, it's one of these things where it, it almost doesn't matter if it's permanent because it's like the you know you pop the bubble, right? Mm-hmm. It's like and events will take a course of their own. Like um, you know, it's kind of like say you have a marriage that's like not going very well. There's like some trust issues or whatever, and then you get in a car accident, and you can't reach your husband or your wife, mm-hmm. and they're just they're not there. They keep, they don't come for like hours and hours. Yeah, and then they come. So like that's America. We get our act together. We go to the hospital, sober up, sober <laughs> up. You know, walk in the door, and whoever's in the hospital bed, husband or wife, is just like, you said, you'd always be there, and you weren't, and it's just really messing with me. <laughs> <laughs> but I'm here now. Yeah, but it doesn't matter because you weren't there when it mattered. Yeah. So that's what so we're dealing what's with. What's your point? <laughs> I'm saying that. I'm saying that once you're not reliable, how can I ever trust you again, Greg? So the next president, when they engage with the world, right? What I mean, it's it's going to be looking at a very different world than yeah, 2016. It's hard to put Humpty Dumpty back together again. Yeah, but there is sort of one enduring thing which I think might overcome some of these uh, micro level trends in terms of U.S. leadership. Which is just the fact that the United States is, is still the center of the the world economic system. Yeah. In pretty much every way. Yeah. Like we are the world's reserve currency. Mm-hmm. We we arguably have the strong we have the strongest economy in the world. Uh in terms of like you know, we have low unemployment. we have low unemployment. Like Trump and bemoans are like two, are roughly two percent growth. Mm-hmm. But like that's actually like pretty good for an economy as developed as we are. Yeah. Uh, and you know Trump wants to get to four percent. People, I know that sounds like two percentage points, but that's growing the economy twice as fast. Yeah, like that's really hard. Real big. And uh, 
so we have a strong like we have growth we have low inflation we have low unemployment um we are the reserve currency we are the biggest consumer market in the world like we are the financial all the, like most of the large financial institutions either are headquartered here have like a, a very large presence yeah so like you know that's kind of like the ace yeah we also have like massive levels of economic inequality yeah uh not since the gilded age uh have the top one percent had so much of our gdp i hear you and i think that's a problem but like how does that endanger american leadership um well i think it is uh it's difficult to you know promote like broad-based growth policies. Well, who says that's what we're trying to promote? Well, that's what we should be promoting. I mean, let me put it this way. I think the inequality thing plays into the domestic instability that feeds into the stuff we were just talking about. Yeah. Uh, But at the end of the day, I think that everyone essentially wants to be on good terms with the United States because, like, we are the economic engine of the world. And I don't really see that going away anytime soon, even with the rise of China. Yeah, I mean, I think the big uh, the big question for me is, you know, if there's another financial crash, another recession. Oh yeah, that, which in the sort of cyclical nature of the economy, uh, by a lot of projections, were kind of overdue. So, you know, the question is, what's the next housing bubble? What's the sort of house of cards that well, we luckily, might be sitting on right well, now? I know, and and Dodd Frank uh, needs to be reformed. But the idea that like we are one massive financial crisis away from a bunch of problems because, first of all, a lot of the world, even in the United States, even they're ticking up a little bit. In a lot of the world, interest rates are either like at zero or negative, yeah. right? So there's no room to jumpstart the economy yeah. by making money less expensive. Uh, and one of the one of the saving graces of the American response to the 2008-2009 crash was for a brief period, you had congressional cooperation on fiscal policy, but most of our response was just the Fed and monetary policy ratcheting interest rates down, 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 down. Well, no, yeah. But, but now, like, I don't think you could count on Congress to pass you know, a massive stimulus bill nor- like we did in 2009. I- and and there, you can't, like you said, you can't go too much lower. So like... We have fewer tools in the toolbox. Yeah, I mean, the the total stimulus package all in was like around a trillion. It was like yeah. 900 billion. Mm-hmm. And, and at the time, we could sort of afford to do that. Uh, we could afford to do that. I don't think we can afford to do that again. Like, there's not the debt level being what it is in the United States. There's not really like a trillion dollars laying the, around. Laying around. Well, we know it's not laying around, but in terms of like issuing that type of debt, that's really hard to do. So we might be in this situation. If there was a big financial crisis like next year, especially with a Republican-controlled Congress, no. there'd be no fiscal stimulus. There'd basically be nowhere to go with interest rates. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I mean, and then, then you have like a sort of a Great Depression-type scenario, which is what we just lost, uh, yeah. lost uh, or just missed. Right. So now in such a situation... Like, everyone would suffer. It wouldn't just be us. So, you know, rising tide, falling tide, like, maybe we're still on top. But it's just like a burning ash heap of a... Our bread lines are shorter than yours. Exactly. (laughs) Yeah, right? So, that's what what I worry about. Yeah. And that that would be, obviously, very bad. And I don't... 
I don't think we have the the pieces in place to to deal with that. I mean, you can count on a recession at least every like ten to fifteen years. Yeah, and though our recovery has been slow, you know, by economists' um, estimates, the recession formally ended like in like early two thousand eleven. Yeah. Um. So. Which was pretty quick, all things considered. Yeah, I mean, it was faster than Europe. Yeah, I mean, that's yeah. another and, aspect. And that was that was all in austerity response. There was no. Um, no fiscal stimulus there. And, you know, Spain, uh, Greece, these countries are still dealing with 25% and higher unemployment, which is what we had in the Great Depression. 25% unemployment I mean, is yeah. a massive, massive problem. And we don't, we don't have the ability to do the type of fiscal stimulus that they, uh, that they avoided if it ever happens again. So, yeah, that would be ugly. But these problems are, I think... Either heavily mitigatable, <laughs> I just sound that out, <laughs> or or solvable. You know, uh, in terms of like the U.S. financial situation, in terms of debt and things like that, and in terms of like reassort- reasserting national leadership abroad and stuff like that, th- they can be solved with good leadership. Yes, but. We don't seem to have. It's not speaking just, of deficits. Yeah, that's like, another one. It's not just the president, though. I mean, so we were talking about this. How many top political leaders does the federal government have? Well, we we crunched a few numbers. There's interns crunched the numbers. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Friends of the podcast. Yeah. Uh, five hundred thirty-five members of Congress. About eleven to twelve hundred uh, positions that are confirmed by the Senate for the executive branch. Mm-hmm. Um, so, uh, approximately 1800 to 2000 plus nine Supreme court justices. Yeah. Um, well, we're not counting judges, but anyway, like, you know, 1800 to 2000. Yeah. Um, and these are the, the 2000 leaders of the federal government. Yeah. And you have to ask yourself, are we sending their best, their brightest? There are 300 million people in the country. More than that. It's like 320, 310. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, 300 plus million people in the country. We have 2,000 people essentially running the federal government. And Jason Chaffetz until recently was one of them. Jason Chaffetz. Dana Rohrbach. Bacher. Joni. Ernst. Ernst. (laughs) (laughs) I say Joni. <laughs> you say Ernst. Okay, so yep. these people are not probably now. Flip side here, Kennedy administration, best and the brightest, like Bay of Pigs, Bay of Pigs, Vietnam. Yes. So like best people doesn't necessarily mean like best uh, outcomes. Like upon graduating from the Ivy League, like you do two years of service in the federal government yeah. and then return to finance. Like yeah. that's not necessarily <laughs> what I'm talking about. Yeah, but I do think. There is a lack of leadership. We sort of have expected that. In terms of competence, we expect the least from the House, a little bit more from the Senate, and then generally speaking, the most from like top levels of the executive. Yeah. And uh, but in some case, that's mostly just because they're the most visible. You know, the only like nationally elected. Yeah, they're the most visible. But I mean, it's like top talent. I mean, Susan Rice. Yeah. Tim Geithner. Um, I mean, those people have their problems, but. Competent, serious people, and uh, and and, you know Tim Geithner. I mean, yeah, serious people. The we don't seem to have that level of leadership, or at least 
forget leadership, people with like enlightened self-interest to like solve these problems in the in Congress. And that's a huge problem because without that, I think we won't be able to solve these problems. But why? Like why why are better people not attracted to government service? Well, I think we've made it as unattractive as we possibly can. Well, you don't get paid very much. So yeah. you either have to go you, you you really have to be rich. You have to be rich. Because if you're really smart, unless you have like a bizarre patriotism, not bizarre, I don't know. Smart people oftentimes want to make money. Yeah. Uh, and if you can't really do that in Congress, although you make a lot of money. You make, like you a, make it after the fact. You make it right? after That's the fact, the, although you're making over $150,000. Yeah, but you you probably keep in two residences. Mm-hmm. You're maybe putting kids through school. Like, I mean, it is not – a congressional salary is chicken shit and let's for put, what it requires you to do. That's true. And let's put it this way. Like, say you're uh, like a pretty – accomplished executive at like coca-cola or like microsoft or some fortune 500. some fortune 500 company and you're smart and, and whatever like why are you going to go to congress not that we need mid-level yeah. executives from coca-cola in congress but just people who are smart who are good managers who can think strategically uh the, the financial incentives like really aren't yeah there. i mean i think that the um y- you know by some estimates from um harvard scholar larry lessig who wrote a a really good book about money and politics a couple of years ago. Um, members of Congress spend between like a third to 50% of their time raising money. Mm. Um, we have made it so expensive to run for office. We have allowed the role of, of money and high dollar donors to become such a massive part of what it means to be a representative in mm-hmm. terms of just like how you spend your time. Um, and, and then you're paid crap and widely reviled, um, and so everyone oh, yeah, is looking. Like everyone is looking for their future payday. And immediately, like an army of people starts disparaging you online and like jigging through your entire past. Yeah, to see if you've uh, ever done anything bad. Yeah, like, and so why don't this, more people run for office? I mean, when they find this podcast, yeah, <laughs> it's gonna be terrible. It's gonna sink your candidacy for. I had done a lot of other stuff. School board or whatever. Yeah. The and uh, in addition to that, sort of like all the stuff you have to go through to run. There is also this idea of, like, say you were a smart person and you wanted to run. Like, how do you do it? Oftentimes, you know, the party comes to you. Yeah. And they're like, we, you know, we really think you'd be a good candidate. And and the recruitment is how you get on the ballot. And if that doesn't happen, you pretty much have to be so wealthy that you can, like, jumpstart your own campaign. Yeah. Until the party decides you're serious and comes in and helps you. Yeah. Like, there's no avenue to get into politics if you just want to. The figures that I have heard from people that have run for office is that you need $200,000 on hand virtually from your announcement that Mm -hmm. you're running. Uh, And if you don't have it, then the party isn't really going to notice. And your candidacy will go nowhere. Yeah. You know? It's kind of like asking for the manager at a restaurant. It's like, can I run? It's tough to get there. It, can I, is there someone here I can talk to you about running for office? Well, I'm not the manager, but I'm the shift yeah, supervisor. Yeah, let me go uh, see if I can find someone. Yeah. It's like, uh, I'd like to talk to you about uh, running for office. Oh, I'm sorry, I can't help, help you. Let me see if I can find... It's just like this infinite... It, there's no doors for it, right? Yeah. And, and, then so on, that's, and then on top of it, why would you want to run if if your district isn't competitive? Yeah. 
so there's all these barriers to getting good people in. And what we're left with is... And, and virtually the only um, virtue, the only sort of redeeming virtue that prevent, that you know, provides any good legislators is like a sense of patriotism and like service to their country. But sometimes right? that can be a double-edged sword. Sometimes you can get like really good people who have what I would call like the right values and like that's why they, that's why they like brave the storm to run. Mm-hmm. And then the flip side is the only other people who want to run are like crazy ideologues yeah. who are like, I believe the country is being taken over by Mexican insects yeah. or like whatever. <laughs> you know, people like from Iowa, what's that guy's name? Uh, the really, really racist. Steve King. Steve King. Yeah. Steve King, you know, is yeah. has very apocalyptic views about the future of the country. And that type of uh, ideological energy probably is what it's, allowed him it's to— It's very animating. It's very animating. So you either have—I think that's actually a big point I haven't heard of. Her, haven't said myself, excuse yeah. me. The—, the <laughs> Running for office is so hard that it sort of self-selects ideologues. Because that helps you get through all those gets help gets you through all that well, friction. I mean, yeah, you're just kind of talking about the underlying problems with primary systems. You know, you've got to run furthest to the right or furthest to the left uh, to get noticed, and then moderate for the general. Like, yeah, that's a well. Actually, which brings us to the main point of this podcast is that Greg and I are running for <laughs> running away. We're running away. Yeah, and um. So I think until until we start solving that problem, and perfect example, Trump. Why does he run for president? Well, he's got like a pathological ego, yeah, uh, and that's what like caused him to get through it. Yeah. And I think that question of of getting better political leadership is really like what will determine if America is in decline. Yeah, uh, and until we figure out that side of the equation, like we are left to flounder. Yeah. Uh, but you know, I'm optimistic. Al Franken is a guy that I admire. Love Al Franken. Uh, Jason Kander. Love Jason Kander. Uh, there, there are people out there, so we'll see. We'll be back to more of our regularly scheduled, uh, news review in subsequent episodes, but we wanted to step back and did I, did I preemptively end the podcast? No, no, we're done. (laughs) Okay, great. We're done. Have a great fourth, everybody. We'll see you next week. I like wearing